Good morning, church family. Good to see you all this morning. As Phil mentioned, my name is Eric, and I have uh, the privilege of doing many different things throughout the week. And one of them uh, this Tuesday is leading the men's study on Crazy Busy, as he mentioned. And uh, the book uh, self-describes as being help for someone who has hurry sickness. I don't know if you can relate to that uh, rather cryptic phrase, but uh, just generally trying to help you. I think summertime is one of those opportunities where we pause, we look at our life, and we're like, what on earth am I doing right now? Man, I got a lot on my plate. And so uh, just very practical advice. If you can't make it, that's fine. I'd love to put a book in your hand to help you too. Uh, There's a lot of practical help in the world for us as we hope to focus our lives on the things that God would want us to focus on. So um, just an opportunity to encourage you in that way. Um, On that note, I got the opportunity about a week or so ago to spend some time at the beach, and it was kind of fun to be able to do that. uh, Given where we live, it takes a little bit more effort to get out there. And, you know, so I did all the things that people around here would normally do to get ready to go to the beach. Like, I picked which beach, we picked what time, we packed swim gear, we packed towels, we packed, we got little kids, so we packed toys and buckets and shovels and sunscreen and hats and all kinds of things that went into this very short period of time, and it was overall pretty good. I mean, there was someone who's standing in front of you who forgot to put sunscreen on the top of his feet and really regretted that, but notwithstanding, it was overall a pretty enjoyable experience. There's a lot of effort that went into making that an enjoyable time. And I think you're usually like me and a lot of the things like that in your life, too. You spend good effort on things that you want to do and you're focused on. But this past week, just pick some other examples of things I did. I read my Bible. Well, I read the Bible with my kids. I, I don't wear a cape here. I'm not trying to present myself as a you know, superhero. But like, I'm not sure I went through the same level of preparation to get ready to read the Bible with my kids. I went to church last week. And I think I just kind of headed out the door. I'm not sure I went through a lot of preparation to do that. I also got an opportunity to fellowship with other believers. And I think I just kind of opened the door. I'm not sure I spent a lot of time preparing. And I'm not trying to berate myself. I'm simply trying to relate to you. There's many opportunities all throughout the week where we get opportunities to serve God. We get to do the things that God puts in front of us for the week that's ahead of us. And we get the chance to do those things. And I feel like a lot of times we're just completely unprepared for them. And Sunday, right now, where we're at in time and space, is a great time to prepare for the week ahead of us. And so this morning, as we study the book of Ezra, my hope and my goal is that we can think about how to prepare to serve God. That as we look at the week ahead of us, there's going to be lots of chances and opportunities to do different things that God has put in front of us. And to be ready for those things, to be expecting that God is going to give us the chance to serve him and be prepared. I think this passage especially gives us guidance on how to do that this morning. So if you have been with us for any measure of time, we're going through the book of Ezra. And if, uh, you know, if there's any indication, just even my own uh, personal experience, I'm always like, where is Ezra? What's going on in Ezra? Uh, it's not always the book that you flip open to very quickly. Um, just as a recap, God's people are coming out of Babylon, and they are going back into the promised land. So earlier in this book, if you've been with us, this summer, we have had God's people come and they've begun rebuilding the temple. That's what's been occurring. And so what occurred last week is somewhat noteworthy. Chapter 7 of Ezra, Chris preached through it, and Ezra shows up on the scenes. The namesake of the book, 
book of Ezra, he actually appears on the scene. All the rest of it was before him. And so he shows up, and we get to learn what Ezra does. And I think his, his experience, what he does, is very instructive to us. It should teach us how we can prepare to serve God this upcoming week. So, with that in mind, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Ezra chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there's one on the chair rack in front of you. It's on page 349 in the Old Testament, left-hand side. And if you're looking on a paper Bible, it is hanging out near Kings and Chronicles uh, before the Psalms. Ezra chapter 8. If you have it, go ahead and stand with me. We're going to join together in the reading of Scripture. We'll read just the first portion of this chapter, and we'll, uh, we'll get going. All right. Ezra chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. I'm reading from the ESV. It says, These are the heads of their fathers' houses. And this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia. In the reign of Artaxerxes the king, the son, of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, of the sons of David, Hadatush, of the sons of Shechaniah, who is the son of Perosh, Zechariah, who, with whom was registered 150 men, of the sons of Padaoth, Moab, Elihoaniah, the son of Zechariah, and with him two hundred men. Of the sons of Zatu, Shechaniah, the son of Jahaziel, and with him three hundred men. And of the sons of Adin, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him fifty men. And of the sons of Elam, Jeshaiah, the son of Athaliah, and with him seventy men. Of the sons of Shephathiah, Zebediah, the son of Michal, and with him eighty men. And of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and with him 218 men. And of the sons of Bani, Shalumeth, with him Josephiah, and with him 160 men. Of the sons of Bebai, Zechariah, the son of Bebai, and with him 28 men. And of the sons of Asgad, Jonanon, with him Hakatan, and with him 110 men. And of the sons of Adoniakam, and those who came later... Their names being Elephabeth, Jehuel, Shemaiah, and with them sixty men. And of the sons of Bigvi, Uthai, Zakur, and with them sixty men. You can be seated. Uh, laughing, because it's tongue twister. Yeah, I, I, thank you. Yeah. I, it's, it's the lowest bar to hear, uh, get over because I took years of Hebrew and I was the worst at pronouncing. So by God's mercy, you had to listen to me. Um, no, I, I think the first question we come to here is like, what on earth is going on with this list of names, right? Like, and I, I mean that not in a flippant way to demean God's word, but it's not at all obvious to us as the modern reader what's going on here. So first of all, we need to make some sense of this. So I think there's, there's actually a lot of meaning here. There's something to be taken from this. Um, and there's two basic key ideas that are in the first 14, 14 verses here. The first one is that these people are somewhat of consequence. So like the composition, how this group is made up is noteworthy. Who's inside this group may not be immediately obvious, but it's actually quite interesting. The second thing is what they got called to do. So we'll look at those in turn. So let's look at this list and try to make some sense out of it. So first thing we've got in the previous chapter, chapter 27, or sorry, chapter 7, verse 28, smashing that together, uh, we have that these people, the last sentence of verse 28, it says, I gathered leading men from Israel to go with me. 
And then verse 1 of chapter 8, it says that these are heads of the father's household. So the names that are recorded here, these are leaders. These are people of consequence in the group. These are people who had influence other, <clears throat> over other people. So there's something noteworthy just in the fact that these people are someone of consequence. Um, they are leaders, and so rightfully so, they did something that's noteworthy we'll talk about. Second, they are certainly in their own right someone that should be written down. The second thing that's interesting that's not immediately obvious is that in Ezra chapter 2, a few chapters prior, we've actually heard these names before. Chris has read them before. Um, Maybe they just didn't stick in our minds very well. But Ezra chapter 2, almost all of these names have appeared. So we can glean some meaning from that as well. This means that 60 or so years prior, that group in Ezra 2 the same family members are now getting approached by Ezra going, hey, do you want to go back to to Jerusalem? And now some of the same family members are going, yeah, I'll go. So there's a family connection here. That's somewhat interesting to see. I I don't know if we can make too much of that. There's nothing really commentary-wise explaining why that is. But these are people who are relatives of the people who have already gone back, which is interesting. And we also have some other interesting things here as well. One of these people is a Davidic descendant. It's of consequence since the Davidic covenant and everything else and promise there. We also have two priests. And we have, give or take, around 5,000 people. So this is a big group of people. And these are the leaders that made this happen. So this is somewhat interesting to see that that's why they got written down. I think of you know, the modern equivalent. You go into a high school gym and you see names plastered up on the wall of people who are noteworthy, who did things of note. These people were noteworthy. To us, the accomplishment may not seem obvious, but they did something very difficult. And I want to talk about why that's difficult. Going back to Jerusalem would not have been an enjoyable task. It wouldn't have been. If you remember Nehemiah, Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem and he's like, man, this place is bad. Like this is, this is not glossy trifold, hey, come visit Jerusalem. This is like, go rebuild something that was destroyed. And oh, by the way, try to feed yourself at the same time. Uh, this would have been a very difficult calling. And Babylon had a lot of things going for it, right? People had kind of gotten established. Routines had been established. Life had settled. Babylon originally was intended as discipline, interestingly enough, right? Like they, they were, God's people were taken out of the promised land and put into Babylon as punishment. But after time, they're kind of like, this is nice. I could stay, right? Like, it's not so bad. There, there's something interesting in the fact that anybody would respond to Ezra's call. That's God working right there. We'll, we'll develop this theme more. But the fact that anybody would hear Ezra going, hey, you want to come back to Jerusalem? And be like, yeah, I'm on that. That's God working right there. That's incredible. Like, that's not something the average person would want to do. That's a hard calling. It's not going to be fun. It's going to majorly uproot your life. And it's a one-time decision. You're done. That's it. You're going. So I think helpful to see that what these people did is they radically upended their entire life. So very noteworthy in that regard. And I think when we look at this, we start to realize there's a theme that shows up here, and it's the theme of Babylon. Babylon's an interesting place. If you notice this, it shows up in the New Testament as well. It's something that is usually a negative thing. It's very clear. Um, 
But I see, I see that we, we definitely have a connection here to Christ. There's not a lot of connections here to Christ in this passage. And so this is one of the areas where I, I see that what Ezra called people to do here is actually very similar to what Christ calls us to do. So let's take a brief field trip over to the New Testament. We're going to turn right, and we're going to go over to the Gospel of Luke. If you've got a Bible, turn there, because we're going to be there for two or three minutes, and then we'll come back to Ezra. But Luke chapter 18... This is definitely one of my more favorite moments of Jesus' ministry because it's just always relevant. Luke chapter 18. A guy comes up to Jesus and is like, hey, how can I experience the blessing of God? How can I be a recipient of God's blessing? And the guy's got an impressive resume. He's got a lot of things going for him. You're very familiar with the story, no doubt. Verse 18 all the way to verse 30. I'm going to go ahead and read this interaction. I think it's very similar to what's happening here in Ezra. So this ruler, verse 18, he asks Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all of these things, I have kept them from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. And when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those that heard it, then they said, Then who can be saved? And Jesus replied, But what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parent or children for my sake or for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many more times in this time and in the age to come eternal life. It's this interesting call where, where there is the, the prospect of future blessing that is coming around the corner. God's blessing and being right with God is being offered she need to t- pick, you need to leave behind everything that the world has to offer. And that's really the, the call to abandon Babylon. Like Ezra's calling these people to do the same thing. And we see, just as the disciples comment in, in you know, verse 24 to 27 of, of Luke, of like, who on earth is going to respond to this? And, and Jesus' response is, God can do it. God can make it possible that people would leave behind the world and go and obey God and follow him and seek first his kingdom, participate in the blessing, right? Like the call to go back to the promised land is fun- it's fundamentally a call to participate in the blessing of God. It's something that's not yet realized for these people. They're going to go back to Jerusalem. It is not going to be an enjoyable place but it is the promised land of God. And so I think it's helpful for us to take a moment and just to observe that there is faith that is required to, to turn our backs on, on the, the worldly pleasures of the world right now and to follow God. 
it's instructive what these people did. Like, it's not just simply that they moved, it's that they left behind what seemed to be the most promising thing for the promise of better things to come. So it's very helpful to see what these people did. Like, Jesus wasn't just attacking this guy in Luke 18 for his love of money. He was, he was going after him because that man loved everything the money could buy him. The system of the world where that money did something that provided him with pleasure that was greater than what could be actually received through Christ. And the fact that anybody responded to Ezra's call is a complete miracle. So the first thing we need to observe as we're looking at the passage here as we get ready to serve God is that we need to start, first thing, square number one is deny worldliness. We need to turn our backs on Babylon. Like you think about these people. They have left what seems to be the most exciting thing, the best thing going for them. They have turned their backs on it and they are gone and they are heading towards God's kingdom. They need to, we need to take a moment of instruction from them and realize that we too, we have set our eyes on an eternal kingdom. We have sought first the kingdom of God if we're following Christ. So it's instructive to us to, to realize this. Like I, I was even thinking this uh, several weeks ago in the church covenant. Like in the dead center of the church covenant that we read together, it says that we're denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. Those phrases, did they ever jump off the page to you? They did last time I read it. It's like, huh. You're like, oh yeah, I guess I did kind of leave Babylon when I became a Christian. Like I did turn my back on the things of the world. Like I do need to actively engage in denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. It's not just like a one-time decision. You think about these people. They had, we'll talk about this more, but they had four months to turn around. This was a long journey. There are many opportunities to turn back to the world. And for some of us, like we've just never even left Babylon. And I think that's instructive to you if you find yourself in that place. Like you're still here in the world. You're still convinced that the world can provide you with the best thing. The promise of God to you is not something that's alive and fresh like it is to Christians. Where we're realizing there's something better coming. And so that's you today. Like, there is a genuine call to, to receive something better. There are better days ahead as we think about the life that we lead in Christ. And for Christians, like we're heading to the promised land. I think that it's instructive to see that there's something better coming down the road. And I, there's, there's many warnings all throughout the New Testament that warn us about this exact temptation that most of the people succumb to, right? Most of them hung out in Babylon. I think that's noteworthy, right? Like you think of 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul says, Demas, he turned away from ministry, stopped serving, and what was, what was Paul's summary of it? Who is in love with this present world? It's a real danger. It's not something abstract. It's a very real pull that prevents us from serving and ultimately from following God. My question to you, is it evident to other people that you're going to another place? Is it evident to other people that you are a citizen of God's kingdom? I think it's helpful to take a moment and realize that these people got their names written down because they did something like that. They headed to where God promised. So, as we continue on the passage here, there's other things that happen on Ezra's journey here that are instructive to us. And so the, the second thing we come to is found in verses 15 through 20. As we look at this, we start to see about the preparation aspect, right? We've learned about the destination, but we start to understand some of the things that Ezra does to get ready. 
So let's read verse 15 through 20 in Ezra chapter 8. It says, Then I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. And as I reviewed the people and the, and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. And then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemamiah, Elnathan, Jarib, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshuliam, leading men, and for Jeroiab and Elnathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Edo, the leading man at the place of Caiaspha, telling them what to say to Edo and his brothers, and the temple servants at the place Caiaspha, namely, to send us ministers for the house of God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with him sons, sons and kinsmen, and also Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah, of the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons, twenty, besides two hundred and twenty of the temple servants, whom David and his officials had sent, set apart to attend the Levites. These all were mentioned by name. So we've got a description of the first problem that Ezra hits. Um, To us, it's not immediately obvious why it's a problem, and he doesn't actually do us the favor of explaining it just quite yet. So if you're like, why does he need the Levites? We're going to answer that in a minute. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but it's not there. Uh, It's coming up. But whatever the case, it's a showstopper. Right? Like, no Levites is like, stop everything. We got to stop here. So, let's just think for a moment. Like, what does he do? Let's observe his actions here. He immediately gets the right people together and sends them to where he thinks is the best place to go. Um, Sadly, we don't know a lot about some of these people, and we don't know a lot about maybe even these places. We've got some ideas, maybe, but whatever the case. Ezra charts the best course of action. He's like, I got a problem, no Levites, so I'm going to do the best thing that I know how. Here's all these people, I'm going to go. And I'm going to send them. And so he sends them, and they go, and it's instructive what he tells them. So let's look at that. Verse 17, the last part of the verse. He says, the purpose of why I need these Levites, it's rather cryptic at this point, is to send ministers for the house of our God. So not fully unpacked yet, but instructive. And the result is rather surprising yet again. He actually gets some Levites. I know this doesn't seem like a surprising accomplishment, but again, this would be something where you're like, whoa, Levites showed up, that's so cool. Uh, If you think about Levites and their specific life circumstances, you would understand why no Levite showed up in the first place. Let's think just for a moment about, like, how much land does a Levite have? None, right? So you want to go to a land where you don't get any land. Number two, number, second problem that we talked about last week, life at the temple, things are not going well. Like, the temple is in languish. Think, like, you know, thinking in kind of practical today terms, like giving is down. You're going to go be an unpaid minister with no place to live. You want to go? No. No way. Absolutely not. Right? Like, so it's understandable that the Levites are like, yeah, I'm not going. Right? Like, that makes sense. And the people who were initially excited, they probably left like 60 years ago. They went. So all of these other people are like, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. But by God's grace, God moves, and like 38 priests and 220 temple servants are like, yeah, I'll go. 
Like Ezra and his group, like this is a this is a radical decision. Like if you ever had someone come up to you and be like, "Hey, I want you to move." Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, when? Like, oh, right, right now. Like we got the key in the ignition. We're ready to go. Uh, you, you down? And there were like 400 people that said yes. That's incredible. Like that's absolutely amazing. And I think this is instructive to us. The the instructive principle is that we should anticipate challenges. And we should also expect God to work as we anticipate those challenges. I'll talk about that in a second. But we should anticipate that there's going to be problems. Um, when we're serving God, when we're doing the things that God calls us to do, um, I don't know if you're like me, but you get, get into this crazy mode where you're like, well, if, if God is enabling me to serve, then I'm just going to have no problems. Everything's going to be great. So let me just give you a practical, mundane example, example, right? Like you're going to go, and you're going to go to church, you're going to fellowship with people, worship God, and you've kind of been having a rough week, and so you, you're all ready to go, you're going to make it on time, and you head out the door, and you got your coffee cup in your hand, and you slam your hand against the, the like corner of the wall, and coffee is just all over you. And you're like, oh man, i got to change my clothes. Like this, I'm going to be late, this is going to be a major inconvenience for me. You know? And you're like, well, God's just not in it. Like, I'm just going to stay home. Like, what's the point? Right? And it's a silly example, of course. But we have just minor setbacks in our lives sometimes. And, and when it comes to spiritual things, we're kind of like, we, we overly analyze it. And we're just like, well, I had a problem. Obviously, God's not in it. And here we see Ezra. He's got a real problem. We don't fully understand it just yet. But he stops and he takes care of it. Right? He, make, he makes something happen. Like, there's an obstacle, there's a stopper, and he pushes through it. And one of the cool things is that he sees God work. So look at verse, verse 18. And he said, by the good hand of God on us. So he sees that obstacle, he does something about it, and then when God works, he's like, praise God. God's so good. That's awesome, right? Like, when we experience obstacles when we're trying to serve God... It is an opportunity for us to continue serving and being diligent, and then on the back end of that obstacle, to praise God for how he worked and to see his hand move. So I would just encourage you, if that's you today, right? Like if there's something that's a challenge as you think about serving God, whether it's something as simple as as trying to meet together with another believer to fellowship with them and and mentor them or whatever it is, like just some thing that comes up where you're like, well, I guess I just can't make it happen. You know, one little problem. I guess I just need to stop. I would encourage you to continue forward in good works. As we consider the rest of this passage and we continue moving forward, let's look at what happens next to Ezra. Ezra is now going to proclaim a fast and pray. So let's look at verse 21 through 23. It says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, and that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all of our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. 
So I think we see here in these short verses, we see what's at risk with this act of service. Right? For Ezra, there's something at risk more than just kind of having a rough day. There's something at risk here, and we see the response that Ezra has once he realizes what's at risk. And there's two things that are going on as far as the risk to this group. The first risk is that the king is watching. The king and all the people are watching, and they're like, how powerful is God? That's the first problem. That's actually the biggest problem at this point. Ezra realizes he kind of got maybe a little carried away with his words. Is he wrong? No, he's not, not wrong at all. He actually says the truth, right? Like God is absolutely powerful enough to defend God's people. He is. But then he starts to realize, did God promise me that this journey would be safe? Not necessarily. And so he comes in humility, verse 21, to ask God if God would move and God would act. Well, that's very instructive to us. But he's also very realistically thinking like I'm at personal danger, right? Like this is, this is 5,000 people, all of their earthly possessions, and the sum of money that they have with them is, is astronomical, it is an incredibly large amount of money. Um, it's actually even kind of hard to understand some of the measurements, so to really even fully understand how much it is is kind of hard to ex- explain. But it was a lot. It was a gift from a king. I don't know. You probably haven't gotten any king- gifts from kings recently. I haven't either. But I would imagine they would usually be a lot of money. And so there was, there was a lot of value stored up in what they had. I think that's very helpful. They were at risk for theft. Like, they were a slow-moving target, and, you know, kind of my light-hearted moment for the the morning, like, the streets were dangerous, like, not a new problem. I feel like some people are like, the streets are so dangerous. It's like, the streets were really dangerous back then, too. Uh, You know, just practically speaking, like, Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, and he was like, a guy got beat up on the street, and a Samaritan helped, and everyone was surprised about the Samaritan part. That was the shocking part. Like, there there was a real danger, like, these, these paths that they were going to tread were not safe. And at the end of the journey, Ezra's like, wow, we made it safely, and he's surprised. So I think it's, it's helpful to realize like these people very practically are putting their personal well-being in harm's way by doing this. Like This is not Wells Fargo wagon person riding in shotgun. This is like convoy of U-Hauls going through a rough part of town. This is going to be dangerous. And so he's genuinely seeking God. Let's look at the method by which he's seeking God. Yeah, he's praying, he's fasting, but there's a word in there that's very interesting in verse 21, and I already mentioned it, that he said we might humble ourselves before God. There's a humility here. There's a humility of going like, God, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know, and will you please protect us? For your namesake, God, I'm coming to you. I boasted about who you were, God, to the king. And so have my heart be truly believing that. Like, have my heart genuinely believe that you are powerful enough. Like, I want to cleanse my motives in humility. Have this not be an expression of my pride, Ezra, like not his pride, but of who God is and what he's capable of. God is powerful. He's sovereign. He's absolutely able to protect them. And so Ezra spends time in prayer preparing them for the journey. It's very instructive. 
So as we look at this passage, we see that we're going to humbly seek God's sovereign power. Right? Like, we, we do the same thing. We rightly should as we consider different opportunities to serve that are in front of us this week. We should come to God humbly, asking God to work and God to move. Asking him genuinely, expecting that God would do something. I, I think on a practical level, do, do we go through the week thinking, hey, like my coworker who knows I'm a Christian is watching me? And he's watching the way in which I care for people who, who are in my church. He's, he's watching the way that, that I, I teach my kids and how I talk about my kids and how I talk about my family and how I talk about my church. All of these things where it's like the unbelieving world is watching us as we serve one another. What's the world getting from that? That's a really hard question to answer that each one of us need to think about. That Ezra thought about, and when he thought about it, it caused him to turn to prayer and fasting. That's instructive. I understand how there's a a modern tendency to shy away from forced prayer and forced fasting. Fair and well, right? We want to avoid the errors of the Pharisees, right? Like, we don't want to be people who are just doing it to do it, to show it to the world. That's fair. But... You know, just practically this morning, I'm preaching, and I prayed this morning, and then I see a group of people up here on the stage praying, getting ready for church. And I'm like, should I, should I go up there? I mean, I, you know, and then of course I'm working on a sermon that's about praying before you do something, right? So, you know, of course I do, but like there's that thought that runs through your head where you're like, oh, do I really need to pray right now? Really? Like, uh... I think each one of us grapple with that. That's that's a real struggle. And here, Ezra, once he realizes the severity of what he's doing, his immediate response is, everybody pray, everybody fast. We need God's blessing on this. Are you living in a place where you're, you're ready and willing to come to God in humility and you're expecting him to work? That's instructive to us. As we continue on the passage, we see some of the interesting things about this act of service, we get to get a picture of why the Levites are necessary now. So why did we pause everything to get the Levites? Let's read verse 24 through 30. He says, Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebiah and Hashabiah, and ten of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering of the house of our God, that the king and his counselors and his lords and all of Israel there present had offered. And I weighed it out into their hands, 650 talents of silver, and silver vessels worth 200 talents, and 100 talents of gold, and 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks, and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, them being the Levites, You are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them, keep them, until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the head of the fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem, within the chambers of the house of of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of God. So, we see now suddenly why the Levites are necessary. 
This is the first thing we observe in this passage. Is we get the idea of why Ezra was looking for Levites. We also see what Ezra says to the Levites. So let's look and try to make sense of why the Levites were necessary. So Ezra's doing something interesting here. He's improvising a little bit. So you've got a strange circumstance. You're in a foreign land, and you have something that needs to go to the temple. You need to get it back there. And it has been dedicated to the Lord in a foreign land. So who are the correct people to move that? The Levites, right? Like, who got the opportunity to move around the tent of meeting in the tabernacle in the desert? Who had the opportunity to serve at the temple? The Levites. And so Ezra is improvising here. He's going, this is a new circumstance, not really covered by any commands. But if I were to take holy gifts from God from one place to the other... I suppose I should probably have the Levites do it. And so he stops everything. And these people have a very specific job. They get to move things from point A to point B. It's not exactly the most glamorous job ever, but that's something that is necessary. God has given them the role of serving in this way. And so God is going... This is, this is what happened, and I think Ezra is, is rightfully have, having done the right thing. He also instructs the Levites in something very telling. He, he, he goes, this isn't just a moving service. This isn't just moving from point A to point B, getting from one place to the other. This is a holy activity. And so he kind of stops them, right? Don't you need those moments where somebody stops you and is like, hey, by the way, you're serving God right now? Like, just to remind you, this is an activity that God is, is paying attention to. Other people see this, and they inform their thoughts about God. And it's interesting what he says. This is an interesting phrase that we throw around in the New Testament all the time. Verse 28, he says, you are holy to the Lord. That's interesting. Have you heard that phrase before? Uh, that's where we get sa- the idea of being sanctified. We talk about that all the time in the New Testament. Like, it's the idea that you're set apart to do something holy. As Christians, we are sanctified. And there's a calling of holiness on our life. Uh, It's interesting to see over the, the, the years how the world holds us accountable to certain moral standards, but then picks other ones that they ignore. Here God is saying, like, the whole of your moral character is important. As you serve God, God is, is actively watching the whole of your life. I think that's instructive to us. The, the call that Ezra has to these Levites as they serve, and seemingly a mundane task, is very relevant to us as well. As we're engaged in serving God, do you remind yourself that you're holy to the Lord? That you need to be sanctified? That, that there is a calling of holiness on your life? It's very relevant to each one of us. So, as we draw some principles out from this chunk of the scripture, I think the important instruction here for us is that we need to, as we serve God, we need to be sanctified as we serve. Right? Like there's a calling to personal holiness here that Ezra reminds these Levites of. There's also an instruction about very specific tasks that these people have. Like I, I think uh, sometimes of, of what the Levites had to do. I was looking this up as I was prepping, but it's, just, it's one of those humorous things where you're like, okay, in Numbers 3, the sons of Koath, they get to carry the ark. That's so cool, right? Like they get to carry like some of the, the holy objects. You know what the sons of Merari got to carry? The bases, the tent pegs, and the curtains. 
I think it's instructive to realize, like, you, you could be like, yeah, it's just a base. You know, it's just, it's nothing. Like, it's not even important, right? Like, these people could be the same way. It's, it's a gift of some pagan king who doesn't really care about God. It's a big deal. It's not. I, I want you to stop. If that's your attitude as you serve God, that you're serving God, it's a holy activity. It requires holiness. That should be instructive to us. It requires personal holiness. We have the Spirit inside of us who's enabling us as we think about our New Testament experience as saints. And we don't want to grieve the Spirit. All right. Well, as we wrap up this passage here, there's one last thing here. Let's look at verse 31 to 36. 31 to 36, it says, Then we departed from the river Ahava. So they left. And on the twelfth day of the first month, to go to Jerusalem. And he had some commentary. The hand of our God was on us. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes on the way. We talked about that previously. And we came to Jerusalem. There we remained three days. And on the fourth day, within the house of the Lord, or house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth, the priest, son of Uriah. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. And with them were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Binui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. And at that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all of Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, and as a sin offering, at twelve male goats. All this was burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people in the house of, of God. So, in this, we get to see a summary of what they did. Right? Chapter 7 kind of summarized it as well, but there's, here's a summary of the full act of what they did. There's a summary of that and how they responded to it. Right? As I alluded to earlier, like this was a four-month journey through dangerous parts of the world. Uh, it was probably a thousand miles. I don't, I'd give you a sense of perspective of how far a thousand miles is. That'd be like walking from here to the Canadian border. That's a long way, right? Like they, they went a long way, dangerous roads, and, and Ezra's summary of it is the hand of our God was on us. And you're like, yeah, no joke, right? Like they, they kept a reasonable pace. Uh, certainly that's probably evidenced by just kind of the math of it. But it's incredible that they did that and that they made it safely. And there's the sense of like they wrote down everything they started with and then they got there, and they're like, here's the notes of what we started with. And the people at the temple were like, that's exactly what we have here. And everyone's response is, praise God. <laughs> like, this is so amazing. Wow, this is wonderful. So I think really cool to see like, what, what they did and what God did. Like, how, how, could your hand not, or how could your response not be what Ezra says in verse 31? He says, the hand of our God was on us. Right? Like, that's just evident, God-working kind of situation. And I think if we look back on the service that we've participated in, have you seen the hand of God before? Like, God works. God moves. And it's so cool to see what God does if you're looking for it. And these people saw it right in their face. And their response is to worship God. I think that's very instructive. So there's something cool about service. When you serve God, you then anticipate future worship. 
Like one of the things that happens as we are engaged in the activity of doing the things that God calls us to do is that then after they get done, we can look back and be like, oh, look what God did. That's so cool. Like, so awesome to see what he very evidently did. And so it's an opportunity to look back and to praise God. Service, when rightly done, when prepared properly and done correctly, it's giving glory and honor to God. And so it draws our attention to him. It rightly puts the focus on him. I guess one of the diagnostic questions for us, just as we're kind of thinking about this whole series of events that happened to Ezra, is like, can you tell a story and highlight God in it? Can you tell a story of something that you've done lately in your life and highlight what God has done? That's what Ezra just did for us. He highlighted very vividly the hand of God as he and others were serving the Lord. What a cool opportunity that is for mutual encouragement, but then also as a witness to the the world around us. as an opportunity to show how powerful God is. And I think this is true on just a very small level, right? Like you can look back on your week. You can think about the different things that you had the opportunity to do, whether it's interacting with a coworker or a family member, or it's something that maybe you did that nobody even knows about, right? Like all these moments in service where God gives you the right time, the right ability, the, the capability to serve him. But then just think about like when our lives end, Won't it be cool to look back in heaven and see all that God has used us to do? Like, it'll be cool to look back, and that'll be cause to worship God, to consider all the things that he, in his sovereign power, used us to do. It'd be so cool. It's something to look forward to, right? Like, there's something enjoyable about knowing that we're being used for God's purposes. And Ezra had that perspective, and I hope as you head into this week that you will too. So we're going to do something a little bit unconventional this evening, or this morning. Look at me, I just led Tuesday evenings, and now I'm just saying evening. Uh, We're going to end in just a moment of reflection. Like, I want to give you a second. I've just given you a charge. I've given you instructions on, hey, look back on what God has done and praise him. And I kind of did that the wrong way, right? Like, you got to sing and praise earlier in the day. Well, let's take a brief moment. Let's pause. Let's consider for a moment. What has God done in our life? How is God using each one of us? Take two or three minutes. Consider that. Praise God for it. Spend a moment in prayer and go, thank you, God. Thank you for the way that you used me in whatever circumstance it was. This is an opportunity to praise God. So let's do that for just a brief moment, and then I'll close us in prayer. God, we come to you. Thank you for the silence in our lives. It's so easy to let the noise of life, the craziness of life crowd out. Um, Times of reflection, times of consideration, times of prayer to you. And for some of us, there, there might have been the very real struggle of going, I can't even think of what God's had me do this past week. And so, if that's true, God, I pray that by your grace that you would highlight whatever barrier there is. If there's some sort of barrier that that is preventing uh, this this brother or sister from from serving, what a beautiful gift it is, like a cause for joy and celebration. I pray that by your grace that you would encourage them. I, I pray that you would very practically, if there are people who are serving and they just don't have the eyes to see it, that you would help them see you working through them. 
Thank you for the ways in which you work so evidently all throughout the day as we interact with those around us. Thank you that we get to be Christians, not just here Sunday morning, but every single day of the week. Pray that you would give us eyes to see that. And God, we praise you. We praise you very practically for all the good things that you have done. We look forward to what is to come. We know that life is filled with very, very real challenges, very real obstacles, real pain, real hurt. Things don't always go the way we want. And yet you are in control. And we praise you for that. We hold our hands and our petitions to you open-handed. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the way you worked in Ezra's life, just evidenced by the, by the many ways in which you worked in his life. Thank you for using him and allowing us to, to have the account of what happened with him and to be, receive instruction from that, to learn about you. God, we desire to know more about you. And we pray that the world would know more about you through our activities, our service. Thank you for the way that you've used our church. We pray that you would continue to use us this upcoming week. Do this all for your glory, for your son's sake. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, join me in standing. I don't want to be the only one standing here. Uh, And uh, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Greet one another. And if you're struggling for something to talk about, talk about what God's used you this past week. So, see you all soon. You're dismissed.